Great, if you could have that passage we read from just a moment ago open in front of you. As I said, we're working through this opening section of Romans uh, on the bad news. It's a section that runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3 and verse 20. And Paul's been laboring the point, all humanity, both Jew and Gentile, stand condemned before a holy God. We stand condemned because of our sin, and there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Now, as we've been working through this opening section, it struck me as I was in a study this week that it feels like we're in a courtroom. We, all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, have been standing in the dock. And Paul has been on the opposing bench, stating the case for the prosecution. And like any good lawyer, he's not just been stating the charges that are listed against us. He's also been anticipating the counter-arguments that we, the defendants, would like to use to protest our innocence. And tonight in this section of Romans 2 that we're looking at, Paul was fully aware that the Jews wanted to protest, but I'm a Jew. I'm God's chosen people. We have the law. We are circumcised. We, we cannot come under the just condemnation of God. We are safe and secure. And in verses 17, Through 29, Paul's essential message is this. Do not rely on your religious credentials. Do not rely on the rituals and rites of your religion. Only rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick things up then in verse 17. Look at what Paul says. But if you call yourself a Jew. See that if there. That's incendiary. If you call yourself a Jew. Imagine a Jew reading this. If I'm a Jew? How can you say that, Paul? I am a Jew. To the Jewish mind, being a Jew was the greatest of all privileges. They gloried in the fact that they were God's chosen people. But here Paul deliberately says if, because he wants to get them thinking about that very fact. You see, it's one thing to be a Jew, but it's quite another thing to think that because you are a Jew, you are safe and secure from the judgment of Almighty God. In many ways, Paul starts by saying, if you call yourself a Jew, do not assume that you are fine with God. Notice what he goes on and says, and rely on the law. The word rely there, you could circle it, it's a key word. The Jews boasted in the fact that they were the custodians of the law. They received the law at Mount Sinai from God. 
And so, as God's chosen people, they, they truly rejoiced in the fact that they had the law, but they also relied on the law, both as a means of salvation and both as a way that they thought would protect them from the just condemnation of God. But Paul goes on. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. The Jews would boast in their Jewish credentials. They would boast in the fact that they were the recipients of the law. But they would also brag about the fact that God was their God. And they were his people. And it wasn't just a a boasting in, in, in a good sense. It was a boasting in the bad sense. You see, the Jews delighted to boast in the fact that they were not like the pagans, the Gentiles. As we said when we were studying the the opening, the the section in in chapter 1, it's quite likely that the Jews and the congregation in Rome would have been shouting out hearty amens to what Paul was saying, that the Gentiles stand justly condemned before God. One of the things that the, the Jews had forgotten, that being part of God's chosen people was it was not reason for being proud or being smug or arrogant. It was actually reason for humility. Because the reason God chose them was not because they were special, was not because they were great. It was because of God's love. His hesed love. A love that they did not deserve and a love that they could not earn. Deuteronomy chapter 7 The Lord your God, speaking regarding the people of Israel, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love in you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. You see, the, the, the Jews, they... They'd got it all wrong. They they were boasting and bragging that they were God's chosen people. They were proud and they were arrogant. And and you remember that one of the great callings of the Jewish people was they were to be a light to the other nations. Other nations were to look at them and come to believe in their God. That was part of the great privilege and responsibility of being a Jew. And yet the problem with the Jews is they despise the nations round about them. And so you think of the book of Jonah. And God gives Jonah the prophet that mission to go to the people of Nineveh and proclaim a message of repentance that they might come to know and love God. And Jonah does a runner. But there's this important section where he's in the boat with the sailors, the pagan sailors... And in order to cause the storm to subside, they have to throw Jonah over. He ends up in the belly of the fish. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah prayers his prayer of repentance. Do you remember it? Do you remember what he prays? In essence, this is what he says. Lord, I thank you that I am a man who makes righteous sacrifices to you And I am not like pagans who bow down to idols. Salvation belongs to you. And then we read that the fish vomited Jonah out because his repentance 
his repentance was just a classic Jewish prayer. I am not like the pagans. And there's a, a real irony to that whole scene because as Jonah's in the belly of the fish, the sailors who'd thrown him overboard, we read in chapter 1, were praising the Lord and offering sacrifices to him because he rescued them from the storm. And here's Paul, and he's laboring the point that the problem with the Jews is they can be so arrogant in their attitude, so proud and so smug. And remember the reason that Paul can say this with a real understanding is because if there was anyone who was proud of the fact that he was a Jew, it was the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ. Now, what I want us to do at this moment is I want us to press pause. Paul's addressing the Jew, but we didn't come here this evening for a history lecture. We came here to, to hear what God has to say for us as well. And so imagine that this letter, Paul in this section has started it. He said, but if you call yourself a Christian... Do you know that you're not fine, okay with God? If you're one who, who relies on the fact that you've got orthodox theology and you love to boast in the fact that you grew up in a Christian home, you are catechized and you've gone through communicant classes, Paul here wants us to come to this passage and ourselves feel the full impact of it. You know, a good test if you are relying on your religion is to yourself, are you proud that you're a Christian? Another question is to, to ask yourself, do you have compassion for the lost? Or are you more concerned about God's people? more particularly yourself as a child of God. Well, the Jews clearly thought that their Jewishness, their receiving the law, the fact that they boasted in God, they, they saw that as a safety net. Well, look at what, what, what Paul goes on to say, that the other thing they really boasted in is that they knew the will of God. They approved what was excellent. In other words, they thought of themselves as those who were morally superior they would make correct ethical decisions. They, they were people who were able to see the wrong choices others were making. One of the real travesties is when you meet a Christian and they're so proud in their moral superiority. We should never be proud because of our morality. In fact, if there's anything... We're those who know the doctrine of total depravity. We're all marred by sin. None of us, none of us here have any reason to be proud because of moral superiority. There are many people who are not Christians, even atheists and belong to other religious religions, and in common grace they can act better than you and I. in various contexts and situations and circumstances. We have no reason ever to be proud, and that was one of the problems with the Jews. And as we're going to 
see as we go on, their lives are actually marked by hypocrisy. They claim to be morally superior, but in reality, they did not live up to the laws of God. Look, look at what Paul Zana says, because you are instructed from the law. So that's why they were morally superior, because they, they knew that they were instructed from God's law. They memorized it. They studied it. They meditated upon it. And, and he goes on in verse 19, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul piles description upon description to say these Jews, they knew their privileged position. They knew what their calling was. They knew their responsibility And now he turns around to them in essence, he's saying, guys, this is a dangerous thing. Not being Jewish isn't dangerous, not being moral isn't dangerous. But when you start relying on these realities for salvation, you're in a deadly, dangerous position. You know, there's not much difference between the words morality and moralism. But there is an eternal world of difference between making a good thing, morality, into your God, moralism. And that was a Jewish problem. They made morality into their God. Let me just press pause there again. Let's just do a heart check. Have you made morality into your God? Do you think that by keeping the law that that, that this will be a source of righteousness for you before God? Again, one of the ways you can can check this is, is do you rely on your moral performance to determine what you think you're standing before God is? Do you ever boast about to other people the things that you have done even as a Christian? Or boast about the things that you've achieved in your Christian life. It's so easy to start living as a functional moralist. Well, let's press play again. Paul, Paul's point is he, he, he's warning these Christians you cannot rely on your religious credentials, you cannot rely on the fact that you have the law. In fact, Paul's so keen to show them that their religious credentials are no escape route from God's condemnation. So, so, so to do that, to make it absolutely clear to them, he, he now asks a series of searching questions. These Jews who, who claim to live up to the law, he says, okay, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, these series of rhetorical questions, Paul is seeking to undermine their confidence in their moralism. The problem with these Jews is they did not practice what they preached. In one word, they were hypocrites. They said one thing and they did another thing. 
So let's just use these examples. That they told others, you must not steal. And then they stole. Now, now, sometimes you can hear that and you think, you know, were these strict Jews going about stealing from their workplaces? Were they stealing things from their neighbors? Probably not. You know, these were strict, scrupulous Jews to the law. But they were stealing a whole lot. Because you know a Jew who brags in their identity and in themselves, you know what they are stealing? You know what they are robbing? They're robbing God of glory. They were glory robbers. They were thieves of the worst kind. It's not about you, God. It's, it's about me. The next one, he says, you who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, in the, in the first century world, especially in Rome, right, it was a culture where pagans, Gentiles, Romans, nearly everybody who was a Roman and, and someone with status would have a mistress. In fact, you would have slaves who you would literally have in your employment so that you could sleep with them and enjoy them. And you can imagine the Jews, the strict Jews looking on and saying, we must not commit adultery. You must not commit adultery. Now, outwardly, they didn't have a mistress that they would go and visit. But inwardly, these same Jews had wandering eyes, lustful eyes. In the secrecy of their bedroom, they would indulge themselves in all of their lustful fantasies and thoughts. You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then there's this, this one, you who abhor idols, do you rob idols? Now, this has stumped so many commentators. It's, were the Jews robbing temples? And so there's, there's different illustrations you can find in early Christian history of Jews lit, who literally went into temples and ended up walking out with an idol only to have it melted down and then keeping the silver or gold. But I don't think that's what is being referred to here. See, the Jews hated idolatry. They knew God's law. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall make no gods, no graven images. You would have heard them preaching sermons condemning idolatry. See, it says, do you rob temples? I think Paul's speaking figuratively here. What Paul's saying is, they might not go into a pagan temple and bow down at a physical idol. But do you know what they do? They worship the very same realities that these physical idols point, that people were worshipping at. See, often the idols that people went into bow down at pagan temples were idols for pleasure, for sex, for power. Idols of money and, and prosperity. And Paul's saying, you know, your problem as Jews is that the very things you say you abhor, you commit that idolatry in your heart. Idol worshipping is more than just a physical act. It can be an internal act, as we all know. Now, let's just press pause for a moment, right? We're thinking about the Jew, the 
But we must come under the, the, the search light of God's word this evening. You know, in a church like ours, we're a Bible-believing church, evangelical, reformed, love the Lord. And that means that we are pro, 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 and we're anti, 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 pro-life, anti-divorce. We're pro-family. We are anti-abortion. My, my brain's just floundering right now, but you get the point. So you who teach these things, you who believe these things, question are you really pro-life do you ever slander man and woman made in the image of god you want to be pro-life you've got to be pro-image bearers that's everyone you want to be pro-life are you really pro-adoption and 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 maybe not even pro-adoption how do you care for your own family You who say you're anti-divorce and anti-this and anti-that. How faithful are you to your vows? Let let us sort the, the torchlight of God's word come upon your life right now and ask yourself this. Are you a hypocrite? Am I a hypocrite? Now, here's the thing. I'm the one standing up here. I'm the one who preaches on a regular basis. I'm the one who often says, do not, do not, do not. And yet I'm the one who knows my own sinful heart. And I'm the one who can do the very things that I stand up here and say, do not do. As as we've been studying Romans chapters 1 through 3, it is supposed to make us feel really uncomfortable. Paul is trying to strip us of everything. And the reality is, you and I are lawbreakers. We are hypocrites. You know the antidote to hypocrisy? is to admit you're a sinner. And that you need a saviour. You see, a sinner's admission is, I break God's law. A sinner's admission is, God, I, I do not live up to your standards. I need a saviour. I cannot do this on my own. Now, now, here's another just diagnosis test for your own heart. See, the problem with hypocrites is, right, they love the concept of truth, but they're never changed by it. If you want to know if you've got hypocritical tendencies, you'll sit in church and you'll listen to sermons and you'll think, this is great for that person over there. And you yourself will never allow the word of God to penetrate and pierce your own heart because you'll put up your defense mechanisms. Your inner defense lawyer will stand up in your heart and he'll make all the cases this does not apply to you. If you're a hypocrite, you'll rely on your own spiritual achievements. All the while you'll look down on others, you'll condemn others. Instead of encouraging others, you'll tear down others. Now, this is the scariest part of this whole reality. Those who rely on their religion. Instead of them having right relationship with God, do you know what it does? Do you know what it causes? It causes God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. You live like a a hypocrite. You dishonor God. See, the thing about the Jewish hypocrisy, it meant that Gentiles looked on at the Jews and saw it, said to themselves, you know what? I want nothing to do with their God. If that's how they live, I ain't following Yahweh. I ain't trusting in Yahweh. 
And so let's ask the question, what does your Christian life, what does my Christian life say to others? Those who we work with, those who we study with, those who we live with. Do they want to become followers of our God? Or is God's name blasphemed by them because of us? Are you an advert for God? Or is it like you live with a a big sign on you that says, keep clear? Because you are someone who points people away from God. Now, the big point we've been laboring there is one's religious credentials cannot save them, but as we go to verses 25 to the end now, religious practices cannot save us. Paul's really trying to drive this point home. He wants people to know you cannot rely on your religious credentials. You stand condemned. You have broken God's law. You are a hypocrite. You are under his just condemnation. You desperately need a savior. Well, Paul's not done. The Jews' defense would be this, but hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Here's our trump card. Paul, we are circumcised. Paul, we've got the physical sign that we're God's people. God's covenant sign. We're in covenant relationship with God. He's our God. We're his people. He'll never break his covenant. Paul, we are not going to face the just condemnation of God. We're safe. We're secure. Paul, in this section, writes to the effect to say, if you're circumcised and you don't keep the law, you're you would be better uncircumcised. In fact, Paul says, someone who's uncircumcised, a pagan, a Gentile, who keeps the law is as good as circumcised. It's interesting, the Jews in this section, they stand condemning Gentiles, and Paul says, you want to know the truth? The Gentiles stand condemning you. Now, let's press pause for a moment. Again, let's just hear this for us. We might not make the trump card, you know, it's, it's because I'm circumcised. I don't think, in, in our culture at least, as Gentiles, where not everyone has the sign. But in churches like us, we might say, well, I'm baptized. I was catechized. I've gone through a communicants class. I've, I'm a member in the church. And, and I need to highlight this. Churches like ours, conservative, reformed, Presbyterian churches, it's so easy for people to trust in the forms of Christianity without ever trusting in Christ himself. There is such a thing as dead orthodoxy. And dead orthodoxy is where people say, I subscribe to the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but here's the reality, it makes no difference to my life. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel. They can parse the words, the gospel terminology, justification, righteousness, propitiation. But there's no change in their life. And dead orthodoxy is deadly serious. Churches like our own, where people rely on orthodoxy all the while they don't have a relationship with Christ. One of the most troubling thoughts I've had just preparing this sermon What would it be like for me to be the one who stands on the last day? And God to say to me, 
depart from me. I never knew you. Hold on a minute. I preached your word. I I worked hard to try and rightly handle the truth. I, I learned as much orthodox theology as I could. You trusted in the forms of Christianity. You trusted in the forms of religion, but you didn't have Christ. He didn't make a difference. You had the sign, but you didn't have what it was pointing to, the reality. And that's the problem with the Jews. They had circumcision, but they didn't have their heart circumcised. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, circumcision was never meant ultimately to just be a physical thing. It was always meant to be an internal thing. It was always pointing to the need for the circumcision of the heart. It was always pointing to the need of God's people to have new hearts because our hearts are rotten. They're filthy. They're idol factories. Deuteronomy chapter 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Circumcision was never meant to just be this outward reality. It was always pointing God's people to the need for an inward change. And so you look at what Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So here's a soul, soul searching question. Is your heart circumcised? Has God, by His Holy Spirit, worked in your life all that your baptism signifies? Has God worked in your life where he, as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, his evangelistic sermon, and when he preached the message of the gospel, people were cut to the heart. Has the gospel, by the Spirit, penetrated, pierced your heart, exposed to you that you are a sinner in great need of a Savior, and have you cried out to God for mercy and salvation? Have you received a new heart, a heart of flesh, Has the Holy Spirit done this deep work of transformation in you? And we need to ask that question because on the day of judgment, our confidence is not in what we have done, our confidence in what God has done in us. In opening our eyes to the gospel, in opening our hearts to receive the gospel. Do you know I was right? Salvation belongs entirely to the Lord. And so... Paul's message in this court case, as it were, is do not rely on your religious credentials. Do not rely on your religious rites or practices or rituals. You and I need to learn to rely on our God. In particular, we need to learn to rely on the Son of God who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You know what circumcision was also a sign pointing to? The reason why God wanted the covenant sign placed on males at eight days old on the most sensitive and the most precious part of a man 
was God's way of saying, if you break your covenant with me, you deserve to be cut off. Because God's covenant purposes is I want relationship, deep, intimate relationship. You're to know me and love me. And here's the incredible thing. It pointed to the fact that the one who took the covenant curse, the one who took the punishment and the penalty for the covenant being broken, it wasn't the Jew, it wasn't God's people, it was God's own son. And because of what God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did in the flesh for his people, shed his blood, you and I can be forgiven. You and I can receive a righteousness that we could have never earned, a righteousness that we do not deserve. You know, as I I wrap this up, I, I couldn't help but think of a hymn, and I didn't choose this hymn to finish on, but if a If I'd been thinking about it, I would have chosen it. But one of the greatest hymns you can ever sing is Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. You remember what it says, because it proclaims this this passage so well. Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not by labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You know when you go to Jesus for salvation? It's incredible. Because you receive this free gift that you did not deserve, you did not earn. It is cause for rejoicing, but it's not cause for pride, arrogance, sickness. It's cause for humility. And it's caused to go out to this world with this good news and to make it known to all those who desperately need it. The good news is coming. But Paul here has laid it out. The Jews and the Gentiles stand condemned. But they can rely on the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Let's pray. God, our Father, as we come before your face, we are so conscious of the fact that we might, as your people, be trusting in the wrong things. Trusting in our Christianity, our orthodoxy, trusting in our upbringing and all the privileges that you've heaped in our lives, all the while failing to trust in your Son and your Son alone. And so, God, as we come before you, we would pray that you would By your word, cut us to the heart. Take out the the Spirit's scalpel, expose to our, our sin, and then apply the balm of Gilead, the gospel of grace. God, we long that we would come to you 
and you alone for our salvation and that we would go on trusting you for our salvation alone. God, we know that our sinful hearts and their tendency is always to make it about self. And so we pray that you'd help us to mortify our sin, our pride. Pray that as you've given us new hearts, hearts of flesh, that we would have compassion for those who are around us who are lost. We are only saved because of your grace. We only stand because of your grace. And so we pray that we would be people who aren't cause for others blaspheming your name, but our lives would be instruments in your hands and cause for others coming to sing the worship and the praise of your name. So God, as we draw this service to a conclusion, we pray that we would go from here in the peace and in the assurance that we are loved by you, that we are safe in your Son, the rock of ages, and that we would live humble lives in dependence upon your Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.